0: Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, we read, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, or literally it says this is the book of the geniosis, this is the book of the genesis of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. Abinadab, the father of Nathan, uh, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim. We like him, the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok or Zadok, the uh, father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Family trees uh, can be quite intriguing to research and to study about. Many many of us have gotten into our family trees at, at some point in your life, um, maybe when you get a little bit older, you, you get an itch to find out more about more about your own history. Uh, you know, where did I come from? Um, you know, is there some royal, royal blood in my ancestry? Is there Are there some famous persons to be found there? There's always somebody in someone's family who kind of gets the genealogy bug. In my case, it was my uncle on my dad's side who did all of the research into the Cheney's. Uh, he actually wrote up a, a, a document for us. Uh, you know, here's the history on the Cheneys. It turns out that Cheney is from McHaney, so it would be Scotch-Irish. They dropped, of course, they dropped the Mick when they immigrated to the United States and assimilated. Uh, they were just basically a, a family of poor sharecroppers. You go through our list, and much to my chagrin, there's no famous... Uh, civil war officer in, in our family tree. There, there was nobody rich or famous. Famous. They were just poor, um, poor farmers. Um, but I, I still find it intriguing because instinctively we know our roots tell us something about ourselves. Um, if you want to discover, if you want to better understand yourself, it helps to look into your distant past. And today we for the second week in a row, are looking into the distant past of Jesus Christ and his family. Today we do so in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, a couple of words to, to say about Matthew before we begin. Matthew is uh, the Jews' Gospel. It's a Jewish man writing a Jewish Gospel to a, an audience of Jews, uh, trying to art- articulate what really Paul was articulating in all of the Jewish synagogues around the Roman Empire at the time, that Jesus, he was trying to convince people, Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. You should believe in him. He is the heir to the throne of David. And uh, you know, that, his royal genealogy here is, is written for that, uh, to, to, for that effect. But two, two of the most prominent features of Matthew's genealogy are, are the 14 generations that are included and the presence of these women what I want to do this morning is look at both of those in turn. First of all, the 14 generations. Uh, So Matthew breaks it up into three sets of 14. The first is from Abraham to David, the second is from David to to Babylon, and the third is from Babylon to Christ. One of the things we know about ancient genealogies is that they were usually, they were selective in terms of the people they chose to include. They were not exhaustive. Probably none of the genealogies in the Bible include every single person in the family line. They're selective. What the genealogist is doing is that they look through the line and they say, they'll sometimes jump from this father all the way down to this father with all of the intervening generations skipped because the point was to draw the attention of the reader, uh, focus their attention in a very specific direction. In this case, uh, Matthew compresses his history into a 14, 14, 14 schema. Uh, It's actually 14, 14, 13. If you read very carefully, the third section, in order to get to 14, you have to double count Jeconiah. Now, why in the world did he write it this way? Um, We don't know. One of the mysteries of the Bible, but 14, 14, 14. What is Matthew trying to communicate to his readers I mean, obviously, it's, it's something symbolic. I mean, the Bible, we say the number seven is the number of completeness. It's the number of God. Seven doubled is 14. So one of the theories out there is that, you know, Jewish, these, these ages in Jewish history are now complete. They have run their course And now we have the ultimate fulfillment of the promises, or the completeness of the promises that were made to Abraham in the person of Jesus Christ. That's 14, 14, 14. That's that's one option. But another possibility, and the one that I think is most likely, it has to do with the practice called gematria. So in the Hebrew alphabet, they assigned a number to every to every letter in the Hebrew alphabet so that every word that you constructed would have a a numeric equivalent. Every sentence that you constructed, you could tally up the the total and, and come up with this mathematical code. Well, it just so happens that the name David, did you notice? David appears three different times in this genealogy. David, the D, is four, and the V... Is six in Hebrew gematria? You didn't count the vowels. So if you total up David, four plus six plus four equals yeah fourteen. You say so? Who is supposed to understand that? <laughs> like who is supposed to read this riddle and and figure out this puzzle? Would any Hebrew in the first century have ever looked at fourteen, fourteen, fourteen and and saw the fingerprints of David all over the genealogy? Well, let me. Let me give you this uh, illustration. Imagine that a Martian comes to visit our planet and he lands in the middle of a baseball game, and you have the privilege and the responsibility of explaining to him our nation 's pastime as you are uh, I- as you're watching the game now he 's from an entirely different planet he doesn 't know no know, I- know any of it um, to the naked eye, the untrained eye all baseball looks like is is a couple guys throwing a a hard sphere and hitting it with a stick of wood. But to super fans, you know, to people who have played the game before, you know that there's so many nuances and and intricacies that are going on in every single play. I mean, the the interchange particularly between the pitcher and the catcher is the most fascinating part of baseball. The signs that they go through, uh, where the catcher sets up on the plate, the, the pitcher pitcher will actually watch the batter take his practice swings and see the plane of the bat as it as it goes through the, the hitting zone. And they'll decide what pitches to throw based on the plane geometry. Um, it just goes on and on. You guys know how much I love baseball. <laughs> all, of that, all of that stuff, a, a true baseball fan will take in in a second, in a glance. Yet if you if you have an alien visitor sitting next to you, it could take you hours and hours to explain the nuances and the complexities of it all. Um, something that would seem perfectly obscure and opaque to our Martian visitor would make perfect sense. It would be easily recognizable to one of us. And I think that is, uh, is a fairly decent analogy of the situation that faces us when we read the New Testament. Because... We're not, we're not the original audience. This is not our native tongue. We are, oh, I mean, look, this is not our story. Um, for all intents and purposes, we are people who come to, this, to the story from a different planet. And the connections that would seem natural to a Jew in the first century are obviously uh, much more murky for us 2,100 years later. We should acknowledge that. I think we have a responsibility to try and understand a Jewish mind, to, to enter into um, the, the game, so to speak, to learn the game, to learn the language of the game. It takes work, but it's a small price to pay to get to participate in a story like this, right? Um, and, and we ought to acknowledge the tremendous debt of gratitude we owe to Judaism, and so many of the Advent songs that we sing at this time of the year, O Come, O Come, Vinny, Emanu- Vinny, Emmanuel." I mean, they're all Jewish stories. They're Jewish songs. We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to get to participate in them. But to finish up this first point, I think what amazes me most about Matthew's fourteen, fourteen, fourteen 14 schema is he's really trying his best to con- convince people that Jesus is the Christ, Matthew uses every bit of rhetorical skill that he knows. I mean, he uses all of his brain. He's using everything that he can think of to try. He doesn't say, well, here's the gospel, just take it or leave it. You know, this is the message of Jesus. He's doing everything he possibly can to make the message of the gospel as persuasive, as intelligible, and as uh, to, to communicate it to his audience in such a way that will resonate inside of them. I think that's what a Jew does when they read this genealogy: is it strikes harmonic chords inside their souls, because this is the way they taught, this is the way they felt, this is the way um, this is the way they thought, etc. And you know, can the same be said of us? Do we go to that level of trouble to communicate uh, the gospel as persuasively? One of the great challenges for us in the 21st century is to find out how can we faithfully, intelligibly, and per- persuasively communicate the gospel to our audience in a way that these codes did to the audience of the first century. So that's number one. Number two, the presence of the women. Um, you can't read the genealogies without, without immediately noticing <laughs> there are five women here, and all of these women are in some way or another connected with scandal, right? We got Tamar. If you don't know much about the Bible, Tamar, she had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law, Judah. That's a little scandalous. Um, Rahab. Rahab was the pro- the prostitute of Jericho in the Old Testament. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's from the land of Moab. Moab was... Uh, one of Israel's most bitter enemies. Um, I think the Moabites were also the products, pro, uh, the uh, produce. Uh, produce is not the right. <laughs> the offspring. The, uh, they were the offspring of incest as well. And then the, you have Bathsheba, although she's not named as such. She's named as the wife of Uriah, which reminds us of what we, you know, prayed in Psalm 51 earlier. Of David's um, adultery that he he committed with her. Why are the women here? Well, here's a curious piece of ancient historical fact, and that is, and we sing about Herod the Great. Well, we don't sing about him, but he always, he's part of the stories at Christmas time. I mean, Herod the Great was the one who killed all the little babies of Bethlehem. Herod the Great was the one who built the temple. It was Herod's temple, the great temple in the city of Jerusalem. Herod the Great went to tremendous lengths to keep concealed from the fact, to conceal from his genealogy that he was the offspring of an Edomite. Herod the Great was was half Edomite, yet he would not allow, allow anybody to speak of that fact or acknowledge that fact. He concealed that in his genealogy because to be you know to descend from an Edomite would would certainly compromise you as a as a potential Jewish king, and he didn't. You know, so he he covers up. He covers up that part of his past. You and I do something somewhat similar when we when we write a, a resume for a job, right? We're not going to falsify our resume. Hopefully, we won't falsify our resume. But we will try not to highlight the parts of our resume that that, that look kind of bad on paper. You know, um, If you failed out of your first college and then you bounced around to several other colleges, you're not going to put that on your resume. You're just going to simply put... I graduate with a Bachelor of Science from the University of Arizona, and that's it. You know, you're not going to give any of the trail, will you? If you uh, are fired from one of your jobs, you're not going to offer that piece of information. If, you, if your uh, driver's license is revoked because of too many speeding tickets, you don't, you don't... What we do in our resumes is we put our, our bona fides forward, our shiniest and best accomplishments, the, 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 best, the best look at us... Um, You see where I'm going, right? Isn't it astounding that when the Son of God decides to construct his resume as he comes into the world, he includes all of the dirt from his past. He he includes all of the skeletons, the skeletons in the closet from his family's past. I, I am struck by this notion that, that Jesus does not disavow his sinful family past. He doesn't disavow adultery, paganism, prostitution, incest. He doesn't say, I'm ashamed of you to being part of my family. He says, I, I claim you as my fami- family. I own that. I, I own that story, the story with, with all of its marks of sin and failure. I own that as my story. I mean, what do you think that, that might mean to somebody who's coming to Christianity for the first time, um, also with a very from a very checkered past? Um, a lot of us come from really dysfunctional families of origin. Wouldn't that stand out to you, that the Son of God chose to to highlight that as he came into the world? It's a wonderful, uh, wonderful note of grace. Uh, another reason why the women are included um, it's because Jesus values women. <laughs> I know that sounds a, a bit trite, but but um, nothing changed the status and pers- the, the status of women in the first century. Nothing changed and elevated that more than Jesus Christ coming into the world. Christianity is the it was kind of the the wine that burst open the old wineskins. Christianity gave women. So many more opportunities. They were considered people, not chattel. Christianity completely changed the life for women ever after. I think that's why they're there. But finally, and probably most importantly, uh, the reason that women are included in this, you notice the pattern. There's a pattern. You've got Tamar, who's associated with scandal. Rahab, scandal. Ruth, scandal. Bathsheba, scandal. Who's next? who's next? Mary. Yeah, all of these women, tainted with scandal as they, as they are, um, help prepare the readers for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew wants to make sure that his readers will not dismiss Jesus Christ simply by virtue of the fact that that his mother's pregnancy came from some questionable, you know, questionable circumstances. He says, please, please, whatever you do, don't close your mind to the possibility that God could actually come to earth in scandalous form. There's a long history of scandalous women in the royal line. Uh, keep that in mind as you evaluate, as you evaluate this man. Let's say, I'm going to conclude with uh, another C.S. Lewis reference. He always seems to show up in, at All Saints. But, kids, I know that you guys have listened to, at uh, read The Last Battle. Can I have your attention? You like The Last Battle. I like The Last It's a great story. Well, remember at the end of The Last Battle, which was the last in the Chronicles of Narnia, Tyrion, the character Tyrion, passes through the stable doors, which means what? It means that he dies. And there on the other side of the doors, he enters into... Uh, Aslan's land he enters into this this paradisical state this paradise and there before him are all the children and characters from the previous stories there on the other side he can find Jill and Eustace who he also fought the last battle with and along with them are Peter Edmund Lucy Polly Diggory all of the child, all of the great uh, you know, friends of narnia the, the characters from the previous stories are there on the other side, except who? Except Susan. There's one child who who doesn't make it through. Tyrion, he says, Sire, if I have read the Chronicles right, there should be another sister here. Has your mas- majesty not two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? And Peter answers, My sister Susan is no longer she's no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever we've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy that you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Susan is missing. Uh, Go ahead, look up on the internet later today. There, There are quite a few blog posts and articles written on what happened to Queen Susan. Well, Lewis tells us in one of his later writings, here's what happened to Queen Susan. Susan, she made the mistake, he said, that I made for many years in my life. And that was, I, I got to the point where I was so scientific and so sophisticated that I stopped believing in fairy tales I stopped believing in fairy tales and in the supernatural. I became too sophisticated for them, and this is a, th- a theme that actually shows up in J.R.R. Tolkien's writings and also in G.K. Chesterton's writings. They say that that fairy tales and old myths those are those are critically important. Not because they don't tell us they don't recount factual stories. They, they're not events that actually happened, but they tell us about things that are actual reality. They didn't describe actual events, but they do describe the real structure of the universe as it is. They tell us things about the, uh, they tell us about how things really are. For instance, what is Beauty and the Beast about? Uh, And the movie's coming out in, in March or so. What is Beauty and the Beast about? One writer puts it this way. Beauty and the Beast is about that no matter how ugly we have made ourselves. No matter how bound we are in our own sins and our own self made prisons, there is a love that can cut through the ugliness. A love that is unwarranted, unmerited. A love that can transform us and free us and make us our true selves again. Is Beauty and the Beast giving us an actual historical event? No. Is it telling us something about the way the universe really is? Yes. Or Peter Pan. What is Peter Pan about? Uh, Peter Pan is about the fact that we, we really aren't meant to grow old. <laughs> we really aren't meant to grow old and decay and die. We really are meant to fly. We, we really aren't meant to be earthbound. We really are meant one day at the sound of the last trump to, to fly, to fly with our friends. What's the point of uh, Sleeping Beauty? What's Sleeping Beauty about? Sleeping Beauty teaches that death isn't really death. Death is a sleep. Death is a sleep, and there's a great prince who can come and wake us up from it. A a great prince can come and kiss our lips and wake us up from the grave. You can do the same exercise if you go through some of your uh, myths of antiquity, Helen of Troy, Oedipus... Um Hercules the myths are not historically accurate; they never happen in history, but they point to an underlying invisible reality. So okay, then what does that mean? That means that Jesus is just one more myth, right he 's just one more myth I mean once once a time i 'm um, sorry, once upon a time in a land far away, the king of the universe disguises himself as a baby he grows up to be a man, and he does, you know, wonderful, miraculous works, and in this final moment of self-heroic, uh, self-sacrifice, he lets himself be killed. He's just one more myth, right? And Lewis and Tolkien and Chesterton say, no, no, he's not, he's not just one myth. What, What they say is when you get to the Christmas story, you don't have one more myth pointing to these awesome realities. You have the reality to which all the myths point. You have, in their language, in Lewis's language, myth becomes a fact in the person of Jesus. The reality comes into history. In the the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, the prince, the handsome prince who bears the kiss... The one who's loved can take you from being beastly. The one um, whose who's king will one day make us fly. He's found in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so it goes back to what Brian preached last week. Uh, it was such a good sermon. I was a little nervous about trying to do a second week of genealogies. But the reason that the gospel writers begin with genealogy is to, to say that this is no... This is no myth. This is a a fact that's happened. Jesus is real. He's a real descendant of David. He's a real descendant of of Mary and a real descendant through Joseph. Um, This is real. What will you do? This is the question I want to ask you. What will you do this Advent season to focus on the realness of Jesus? Given the fact that so much of our world, um, like every bit of Advent, it works against us, really focusing on Jesus, the, the tangibility of Jesus. Um, like, our next-door neighbors have these flashing blue and white icicles all over their house. Oh, they dry they, it, it, it shines right in our bedroom window. I feel like we're, we're living in Vegas on the Strip. It's terrible. <laughs> that does not help me think about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the the inflatable Christmas decorations in everybody's front yard. I mean, I'm sorry, Santa Darth Vader does not <laughs> does not help me think about Jesus. What will you do this Advent season to focus? Um, for some of you, for some of you, it it may be it may be um, it just may involve becoming a child again. What Lewis says is that Susan was guilty. Susan suffered from adult-itis. You know, the idea that I'm just too sophisticated. I've got to be an atheist and an agnostic now. I'm too sophisticated to believe in the supernatural. In fact, Lewis, there was a little boy who wrote him. It was in, at the end, it was like December of 1956, a little boy named Martin wrote C.S. Lewis and said, what about Susan? What's what's, what's going to happen to Susan? And here's what G- Lewis said. He said, dear Martin, the books don't tell us exactly what happens to Susan. They leave it open-ended. She's left alive in the world at the end, having turned by then into a rather silly, conceited young woman. But there is plenty of time for her to mend. Aslan is not, is not done with her. There's plenty of time for her to mend, and perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end. Lewis says, um, maybe for you, you you need to, you need to be open to the supernatural and become a child again. For those of us who a hundred percent believe in the Bible, what I would say, I, I know for me this Advent season, I've decided I just need to read through one of the Gospels again. again. I know that's not a terribly Know, great, you know, sophisticated thing. I, I'm just reading the Gospel of John, reading a chapter of John every day, multiple times through the day to remind myself of Jesus, more Jesus, even more Jesus. Uh, maybe for you, it would mean you know, a, a chapter of Matthew a day, a chapter of Luke a day, a, a chapter of Mark. But We've got to focus on Christ. The heart of Christianity is, is a myth which also became a fact. It happens on a particular date, in a particular place, and in a particular man, according to Matthew. And this man, Jesus, who is the fingerprinted son of David. Jesus, the, the man of women, the son of Mary. Jesus, God's son, the son of God. Amen.